Amen. We are going to be in Ezekiel again this week. And if you came today to find out what Providence is about, suspend judgment a little bit. <laughs> Not only because I'm the one preaching, but because of our topic. Last week, we had an upbeat sermon on sin. And I asked my wife for feedback afterwards, because I always ask my wife for feedback, and sh because she will be honest. And she said, oh, I was uncomfortable for most of it. And so this week, we're going to talk about judgment. <laughs> judgment. We are in a five-week series on the book of Ezekiel, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I explained last week that we're actually taking those three words in reverse order. Last week, we talked about the ugliness of sin. This week, we're going to talk about the bad news of God's judgment, which only appears to be bad news. It's actually good news, and you're going to see why, I hope, today. But then we're going to spend three weeks talking about the good. And when I planned this out, I, I was like, okay, I, I'll take the first two weeks, but then I want to, I thought I would take all five weeks, and then realized that I'd be gone when it fell in the schedule for two of the weeks, and so I just get to focus on the bad, it feels like. But it's all right. It's all right. Next week, Ray is going to talk about some good news, the promise in Ezekiel. And then Hunter is going to come and speak about this sort of mysterious, shadowy figure we see in Ezekiel known as the prince. And uh, that's really, he's, he's all about good news. And then I'm going to close with the presence in a few weeks, the presence of God. And so today we're going to talk about judgment. Uh, and we're going to be in Ezekiel. We're going to be in several passages in Ezekiel, but the text that I had, uh, that I selected for today was intentional. It is Ezekiel chapter 18, um, and it's verse 25. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? I want to tell you a little brief story before we get too far into this about a guy named Ernie. Ernie grew up, he was taller than your average person. He was 6'4", six, 6'5", six, pretty tall. And in his young adult years, he was in an accident. And so this side of his face was pretty scarred up. And with a combination of that and his height, he just was intimidating, struck people as intimidating. And uh, in Ernie's later years, a crime was committed. And a lot of fingers pointed to Ernie. And one cold night in October at about 1 o'clock in the morning, a group of men burst into Ernie's room, dragged him out, and before a crowd of angry onlookers, hanged him for the crime. Now, we have in our nation a history of lynching, dark, dark, evil history of lynching. And as you hear this story of Ernie, what comes to mind for you? What comes to mind as you hear that? No trial, okay. Prejudice, yep, that comes to mind. Injustice, why injustice? Yeah. Yep, yep, no real evidence. Anything else? Raheel. Okay, yep, yep. Abuse of power. Mm -hmm. What do we know? From what I just told you, what do we know about this 
told you a short story. What do we know about it? What are some of the facts that stood out to you? Facts. He's tall. Okay. Yep. He's scarred. He looked intimidating. Okay. Yep. What else? Why did he get hanged? What happened? I'm sorry? Some assumptions? I said a crime had been committed. And so based on the way that I just told you that story, we feel that he was unjustly murdered by an abuse of power. But what if we talked a little bit about the crime? What if the crime was the Holocaust? And what if the people who hauled him out of his room were duly appointed servants of the court, the international war crimes tribunal? And what if Ernie wasn't just Ernie, but Ernst Kaltenbrunner, one of the highest ranking SS officials who personally oversaw the execution of over three million Jews? Does that change your perception of the events? Now what do you think? If before we thought injustice and prejudice and abuse of power, what do you think now? Regardless, suspend your belief or disagreement with the death penalty, just for the time being, for the sake of conversation. <laughs> suspend that for now, okay? What do you think? Does it, at least, does it affect your perception of the events? How so? How so? He deserved punishment, okay? We found out there's evidence. He was tried. He was actually one of 10 who were tried in a group. And before they faced their sentence of the death penalty, one of them actually committed suicide in his cell. But Ernst was one of nine other men who were hanged that day in October. Anything else? Any, anything else in your perspective change? I'm not looking for anything specific. There were some, in fact, many, descendants of victims of Auschwitz, which is one of the prison camps that he oversaw, who felt like he got off too easy, who felt like the punishment was too quick and light. And I bring up that story because oftentimes when people, especially outside the church, maybe unfamiliar to some degree with Christianity, when they read the Old Testament... And they read the passages like in Ezekiel about the judgment of God. Because of their own perspective on life, they say God is abusing his power. God is cruel and angry. And God is unjust. Those are the accusations leveled against God when we look at the passages about God's judgment. You agree with that? And I would submit to you that all that's missing in those accusations is some perspective Perspective on the crime itself, perspective on the actions, perspective on who's involved, really knowing who's involved, who's being judged, who has been found guilty and what they've done, and perspective on who God is. So today I'm going to attempt briefly and, and not thoroughly. There have been volumes written on this topic on how could a good and loving God execute judgment on people. And so if you, are, if you have those questions, you're wrestling with that, I would, I would uh, urge you to continue reading and searching that out. But I'm going to take a brief amount of time this morning and just 
try to enlarge our perspective on what's happening here in Ezekiel. Because what's happening in Ezekiel, as I said last week, seems and is fairly brutal. Brutal. So I want to look at a few things about God's judgment. First, I want us to see that God's judgment actually displays his righteousness. It displays his righteousness. His verdict is always correct. He has never pronounced a a guilty verdict inaccurately or unjustly. This is what the people are actually doing in Ezekiel chapter 18. In our text this morning, they're accusing him of being unjust. It, It was said the way of the Lord. This was commonly said the way of the Lord is not just. This is not fair. They found themselves in captivity after a brutal Uh, intrusion by Babylon, an invasion by Babylon where they were besieged, and then they were dragged away and led captive. And as that was happening, they were saying, based on their sliver of the story, they were saying, God is unjust. God is unjust. And God responds to them and says, am I unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? God is just, according to scripture, according to this story, the entire story, God is just. In fact, God alone is wholly just, completely just. God is the standard of justice. So we don't get, according to the Bible, we don't get to approach God and judge him or judge his justice because the assumption that Scripture makes is our view of justice is skewed. Now, for some reason, we don't have a problem in our country, and I I don't think that we should have a problem, looking at the American justice system and saying, there's some injustice there. The perspective of American justice, its perspective is skewed. There's the, there's the well-known symbol of our justice system, which uh, the lady is blindfolded and she's holding the scales, right? She's blindfolded and it's just to represent pure justice, Right? But it's not perfect. We don't have a perfect justice system in this country. God is perfect. He is perfect. And he says, your perspective on justice is skewed. So the degree to which we look at God's actions of judgment and say that's unfair, that's overly harsh, to the degree that we think that, it is because our own view of justice is skewed. If I was, uh, I used to work for a painting contractor for a brief window in college, and fortunately it was a brief window because I was not good at it. But if I was asked, if we decided we wanted to paint half this wall in this auditorium a different color, just a nice accent color, like a bold purple, let's just say, and say I was hired to do that, okay? And so before I set about painting the bottom half of that wall, I just freehand took a pencil and drew a straight line across the wall so I would know where to paint and where not to paint, okay? If I painted the wall after doing that, how would it look? Terrible. Let's say uh, Katie came to the rescue before I painted, and she came in and she saw the line, and she said, I'm I'm just going to help you. And she took a level and drew a straight line across the wall. How would my line look? in comparison to her line. Wavy, like way different. It would be all over the place. Before her work, I would stand back and say, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty straight line. I did a pretty good job. After her work, I would say I was way off, right? 
Do you understand that? That's what it is like for us when we try to approach the justice of God, especially in this area of judgment, our lines are way off. And God is going to say that in this text. You are unjust. You are unjust. And then God says this. Therefore, because you are unjust, verse 29, he repeats the question, yet the house of Israel says the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore, I will judge you. I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways declares the Lord God. So judgment is falling, and in Ezekiel we see it happening, and God is just. His verdict is always correct. His sentence is always appropriate. Now again, think of the first story we told. Before you knew all of the context, you thought that was brutal. You, your mind, if you're like me, your mind probably went to the awful stories of lynchings in our country, right? And thought that was unfair, and in fact, you probably judged the men who carried out the sentence, right? They should be hanged, right? We, we, based on that shorter perspective, we looked at the events and thought, this is unfair. And regardless of your view, again, of the death penalty, when you have the whole story, it's at least, your perspective is at least changed. So is God being brutal here, or is he being perfectly just? And that depends on what you think of the crime that was committed. And according to Scripture, actually, I'll just ask you, according to Scripture, what is the worst sin somebody could commit? Worst sin. Any thoughts? Worshiping idols? Blasphemy? Doesn't matter. Sin's a sin to God, okay? Denying God. Actually, God says this about sin. He says, here's, here's God's definition of, of evil. You have come, you have looked at me, the fountain of living waters, and instead of coming to me for your water, you have gone out into the desert and tried to dig water for yourselves, and all you've got is sand, and you're drinking sand. That is evil. So for God, the worst crime, central, all of their sins flow out of this crime, is looking at God, turning away from God, and going and finding your satisfaction in something else, some lesser thing, which often is idolatry. In fact, we talked a little bit about that last week. That is not a small thing. That is the worst crime in the universe. To belittle the goodness of God and go and make a God out of something else, go try to meet your needs somewhere else other than him, is the worst crime. And what Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel is about, is God bringing the crimes out to light. Because that central crime, that, that's why I referred to sin unusually last week as illegal. That central violation of the law of God fuels all other sins that we struggle with and commit. And to that degree, yes, John, I would agree. All of those other sins are equal, and they're all rooted in that central sin. And once you bring your line of justice up to God's line of justice and meet, you actually see that according from God's righteous, holy perspective, that sin deserves judgment. 
In fact, it has to be judged or God is not just. So God's verdict is always right. His sentence is always appropriate. And there will be no appeals. There are no appeals. In our system, we at least, as broken as it is in our justice system, we do at least have a way for people to appeal their sentence or appeal the verdict if they feel a mistake was made in their trial. But with God as the perfect judge, there is no appeal. Once the judgment is meted out, that's it. That is it. Now, what this all means, what this means about God's justice, God's judgment being right, is he judges everyone equally. He is completely impartial. In fact, over and over again in Scripture, he says, I'm not like your judges. I don't accept bribes. You cannot bribe me in my justice. So we then, as sinful people, and I am definitely a sinner, we should be very careful to judge other sinners according to our own faulty perspective, right? In fact, Jesus would say this later. You've got enough sin to deal with in your own life before you go and try and nitpick other people's sins. And even on a larger scale, we see the church mishandling the judgment of God because they see tragedy. Some churches in this country see tragedy unfold and immediately blame people and say they're being judged. Remember the Pulse nightclub in Orlando that was shot up and people were murdered there were churches that said that's just and that is the judgment of God. They deserve it. And Jesus would say, you better be really, really careful not to do that. Jesus told a story of a tower that collapsed and fell on some people and it killed them. They were crushed. And Jesus said, would you look at that and say who sinned so that they would get killed by this falling tower? You shouldn't ask that. You shouldn't ask that question. Instead, Allow that tragedy to inform your own view of your own coming death and realize that if you don't repent, you too will die. And it might be a heart attack and not a tower, but you will die. In other words, he was saying, you are all sinners. And you have no right to stand up on your own self-righteousness and point at other people and say, they're getting what they deserve. Get them, God. Judge them. Because the minute you do that, you yourself deserve judgment for your sin. You are not more righteous than anyone else. God alone is perfectly righteous. And all of us have a skewed view of righteousness and an imperfect record. And with that imperfect record, judgment, Ezekiel is saying, is coming. In all of the prophets, judgment is a central theme. And it is, all of the prophets are warning people of the judgment of God. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Secondly, God's judgment displays his sovereignty. In Deuteronomy, I'm going to, just for sake of time, you can turn there if you want to, but in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God spends the first portion of Deuteronomy 28 talking about the promises. Remember last week when I said God holds out promise of life and the promise of death to his people, and he pleads with them, choose life. And in Deuteronomy 28, in the first part of that chapter, God goes through a beautiful description of what this life involves and what it'll look like if you choose life. The rest of the chapter is devoted to God saying, God warning his people what would happen if they chose death. 
And he's, he paints this dark picture of going down this path, and he pleads with them, don't choose death. And in Ezekiel 18, he repeats that cry, that plea. He says, why would you choose death? All the way back, a thousand years almost earlier, God says, if you go down this path, what's waiting for you is another nation will besiege you. You'll be starved to death in your own city walls. You'll be so hungry that you will eat the bodies of your dead children. That's what's coming for you. And there will be mourning like you've never heard before. Nobody has ever seen it before. Don't reject me. Don't go down this path. You're choosing your own death. And then almost a thousand years later in Ezekiel, we see in Ezekiel chapter 5, God saying the exact same thing. In Ezekiel 5, he says, I will execute judgment on you because you've defiled my sanctuary. Therefore, the fathers shall eat their sons in your midst and sons shall eat their fathers. Now, we hear that. If that was the only verse that your kids came home from school or from Kid City, they'd memorize that verse. If that was your only exposure to who God is, because you did this, I will judge you, and this is what that's going to look like, you would say, God is awful, right? If that was your only view. But the entire Old Testament is there to paint a picture that that's the last thing that God wants for his people. He does not want them to choose that. And in fact, what the Old Testament says about the judgment of God, when you experience the judgment of God, it is only because you chose it. It's only because you chose it. You were offered over and over and over again life and not death, and instead we chose death. And this was not unique to just the people of Israel at that time. This is humanity. This is how humanity responds to the goodness of God. We see the goodness of God, and we go try to find our water anywhere else. This is what we do. And what God is saying is, if you go and find your water in the desert, you're going to thirst to death. Why? Why would you go out there where there's no water? You're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. And then we do it, and we say, we're dying. God's not fair. That's the response. That's why these people are saying God is not just, because they have met the end that God warned them about. God is sovereign, and elsewhere in Scripture, he says the thing that sets him apart is being able to declare the end from the beginning, being able to stand on this side of a thousand years and say, if this is what you choose, this is how that will end, and then stand on the other side of a thousand years and say, you chose this. You chose this despite my warnings. Looks can be deceiving, and sometimes it looks like we're getting away with it. But God's judgment displays his sovereignty. What about the intervening thousand years? When over and over and over again, the text says the people of God were just doing what was right in their own eyes. And it was dark. It was dark. We talked about some of that last week. I mean, at this time, the people of Israel, the children of Israel, who were not to worship idols, Clearly, if you, if you know anything about the Ten Commandments, you know that's the first one. Don't worship anything else. Worship me alone. At this point, they were worshiping the god Moloch, among many other gods. And the god Moloch was just a giant furnace. That's what he was, with his arms outstretched. And they would heat 
that furnace until those arms glowed red. And then they would take their firstborn child and lay them on the arms and let him burn to death. That's, what the worst, that's how people worshipped the god Moloch, with their firstborn. And in Ezekiel, we hear God saying, that you're, you're doing that. The children of God were doing this as part of their worship. And this was only one of the many other gods that they were worshiping. As you, I don't know if any of you took me up and, and started reading large chunks of Ezekiel, but you'll see this phrase repeated. They ate on the mountains. They ate on the mountains. They're eating on the mountains. What that's referring to is that's where people would go to worship. They'd go to a high place. They would build their idols there, and that's where they would worship. Sometimes it would be orgies. Other times it would be child sacrifice, and it was evil. And it was this proud, arrogant display. We can do what we want, and nobody will judge us. It's available for everyone to see out in the open. And God pleaded with them to stop for centuries, and they would not stop. And so now judgment has landed on them. Looks can be deceiving. It can look like people are getting away with it. David writes in the Psalms, why why do the wicked flourish? Are you not in control, God? And actually, God's sovereign judgment is often displayed by allowing people to do whatever they want. Actually, Jesus said this in John 3. In John 3, after the verse that everybody knows, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And after that, he says, God didn't send me into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I came here to save the world. Not ju- I'm not the judgment of God. I'm the salvation of God. He says, the the judgment, the condemnation of God is already here. And you might ask me, what is the condemnation of God? And it is this, Jesus says. It is that light came into the world and men rejected it for the darkness because they loved darkness more than light because their deeds were evil. That is the judgment of God, allowing people to make that choice between life and death. And when given the choice, Scripture says, we will always choose death. It's part of our nature to choose death over God. We will not submit to him and love him. Be careful when it seems like you're getting away with it. Be careful. We talked last week about how the people of God, Isaiah said, forgot how to blush, lost the ability to even blush over their sin. When they were caught in wickedness, they they lost the ability to blush. And blushing is sort of a red flag. Like, you blush, you're caught, you should repent. You should repent and turn from your sin and confess it, and you'll receive forgiveness. That's what blushing is for. Unless it's like during a providence service and you're being asked for the first time ever to introduce yourself and you blush, that's okay. Uh, (laughs) This is another red flag. Being able to do, feeling like we're getting away with it and nobody sees us should be a red flag. If you look at your life, and I have been here, and you see a pattern of sin that you're seemingly getting away with, it should be a red flag to you that in that sin, you might be experiencing the judgment of God. Sometimes the judgment of God looks like letting us do whatever it is we want to do. Letting us choose, and letting us choose. Anybody encouraged yet? 
Third, God's judgment displays his patience. And sometimes he lets us choose for a thousand years. In this same chapter, he concludes with this great, great, beautiful, compassionate question. Chapter 18. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways. Repent and turn from your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have, you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? And that was God's question over them for a thousand years. Why will you die? Why are you choosing this? It's the same now. This was not unique to the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Peter is going to say, we see the judgment of God in the Old Testament. We see Jesus coming on the scene to deliver us from the judgment of God. And those of us who are Christians are now in Christ. We have put our hope in Christ. Judgment will come again. Jesus will come again. And when he comes again, he's coming not as Savior, but as judge. And when he judges, the world will be judged for their deeds. And there was a common accusation in Peter's day levied against God that said, God's not, Jesus is not coming back. The promise was empty. If he, where is he if he's coming back? And Peter said, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He is echoing Ezekiel, where God says, I don't want any of you to die. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In fact, God says that's something that differentiates him from us too, because you do. How did you respond when you found that Osama bin Laden was killed? There were Christians who rejoiced over that. God did not rejoice. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He sees the world as his lost sons and daughters who he wants to bring home and bring back into his family. And it does not please him when they choose death and die. He is patient. I'm not like you, he says. I'm not quick to anger. I am slow to wrath. I'm quick to forgive, unlike you. This is not God flying off the handle. The judgment of God is not him flying off the handle. This is centuries of God's patient pleading with his people to turn from the way of death and to receive life from him. And even as he's pronouncing the judgment, he can't even pronounce the judgment without offering life. The sentence has already been rendered. They're guilty. They know it. Their deeds are on display for everyone to see. And yet God says, if you will just turn, you will be forgiven. I'll forgive all of it. Just turn. Why is he patient? He's patient because judgment isn't at the center of his heart. That might sound, depending on your background in the church, that might sound heretical, but it's biblical. Judgment is not what's at the center of his heart for humanity 
love is at the center of his heart. God is not being hateful here. He's not being petulant or petty. His desire is that, given enough time, his people would repent. And these are not, this is, you should not read Ezekiel in a voice full of rage. You should read it with a voice full of grief, like a father who's telling you about his son who is living on the street and refusing to come home. That's how you should read it. That's the voice here. This is grieving the heart of God. He's grieving over what they're willfully, stubbornly choosing. Or like a mom in our neighborhood. We have heard this from moms in our neighborhood who are grieving because their cute six-year-old sons are now 16 and are choosing the gangs. And these moms have worked so hard to keep them out of the gangs, and now their sons are choosing it. And their moms are grieving because they know it's going to end in death or prison. And I'm going to lose my son. If you could read Ezekiel with a mother's, through a mother's heart and hear that voice, it would help your perspective on what you're hearing here. Won't you live? Why would you die? Don't do this. Lamentations 3.33 says, He does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. I'm going to read a brief quote from this book. It's called Gentle and Lowly. A group of us read it together on Thursday mornings, and I would highly, highly recommend it to all of you. And if you would say, books aren't in my budget right now, I will be happy to find a way to buy it for you. This is an excellent book on the heart of God, specifically the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. So if you're going through sin or you're going through suffering, that should cover all of us. I would commend this book to you, but... Here's one of the things that he says. When God issues judgment, he says, he is, if I can put it this way, without questioning his divine perfections, conflicted within himself when he sends affliction into our lives. God is indeed here in Ezekiel punishing Israel for their waywardness as the Babylonians sweep through the city. He is sending what they deserve, but his deepest heart is their merciful restoration. That's what's in his heart. Uh, in the book, he quotes Thomas Goodwin, who says, when he, comes to, or, uh, when he speaks of punish, punishing, it says, he does not from his heart afflict nor grieve the children of men. But when he comes to speak of showing mercy, he says he does it with his whole heart and with his whole soul in Jeremiah 32. And therefore, acts of justice are called his strange or unusual work in Isaiah 28. But when he comes to show mercy, he rejoices over them to do them good with his whole heart and his whole soul. So for centuries he's pleading, and now it's happening. And even as the judgment is happening, he's pleading with them, turn and live, turn and live, turn and live. This is not what I want for you. What I want for you is life. Have you ever been stuck in sin? And James says that all sin leads to death. It starts when we're tempted, we're led astray. We sin, and then eventually sin leads to death. And have you ever felt that, that hopelessness, that despair, like, this is death? Or is it just me? Have you ever felt that? I have felt that. This is death. There's no joy. It's dark. And in the midst of that, God is not standing over you ready to just clobber you. God is standing over you with the tears of a father saying, just turn, 
just reach for me and I'll help you out of it. His heart for you is mercy. And we should be able to understand that because that's, that's, justice is what we want for other people. Mercy is what we want for ourselves. It's true. When somebody throws a rock through your window, you want justice. Go pay me for the window. When you're mowing the lawn and it actually sends a rock through your neighbor's window, you think, ooh, I hope that they don't demand justice. <laughs> right? When somebody gossips about you, you want justice. But when you tell somebody else about what they did, <laughs> you don't want justice. I know that's not just me. This is our desire. This is what we want. We want mercy. And the good news is God's heart is full, full to overflowing of mercy. It's one of the marks of the good shepherd in Psalm 23. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, he says at the very end, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And the guy who wrote that was a murderer and an adulterer. Surely, surely, if I know God at all, his goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell at home in his house forever. This morning, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, as he's called in Scripture, might be tapping you on the shoulder, whispering, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. It's one of the Spirit's primary roles in the world, Jesus said. He said, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So he's literally out there now pleading with his people, repent, turn from your sin, and I'll give you life. I'll give you life. Why would you rather die? The way God judges testifies to his long, slow, patient desire to see us turn from our sins so we never have to experience his judgment in the first place. And then lastly, briefly, God's judgment actually displays his love. There's this unusual, there's a lot of unusual texts, and I'm going to try not to steal Ray's thunder when he talks about the promise of God, but I just got to talk about a few of the promises here. There's this unusual text at the end of chapter 16. I briefly read the first part of chapter 16 to you last week, and you might remember it because it has the word horror in it. And that's an uncomfortable word. It's an uncomfortable word for a few reasons. It's uncomfortable to say as a pastor in church to talk about it. It's uncomfortable because some of us have experienced sexual brokenness, and we have heard that term leveled against us, and it can trigger us. But at the end of chapter 16, God swerves right when all of 16 expects, us, expects God to take a left-hand turn toward condemnation and wrath and judgment. So we expect him to end by saying, I will kill you for this. And that's not where it ends. He actually swerves to the right toward mercy at the very end of chapter 16. I'm, that last paragraph is beautiful. I'm just going to read the last couple of verses. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord. That makes no sense. The case is clear. It's open and closed. We're guilty. We did it. And God says there is coming a day, not when I make you atone for your sin, which is what we expect him to say at the end of such a horrendous chapter, when I atone for your sin. 
God is so full of mercy that even when he has to dispense judgment, he provides a way to take it on himself and pay our penalty for us. That's what happened on the cross. In chapter 18, verse 32, he says, and it's almost, I, I don't think it's sarcastic, but it's close. He says, cast away from you all the transgressions that you've committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. He's saying that's what you need when you're experiencing the judgment of God. You need a new heart and a new spirit. What's the problem with that? We can't make it. We can't make ourselves a new heart and a new spirit. So what are we supposed to do with that advice? God knows this. And later in chapter 36, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, what he's saying is, I will redraw the line for you. I will bring you up to my level of justice. I will equip you to obey. I will equip you to love me. I will replace your heart with a new heart. In the first covenant that God made with Abraham in chapter 15 of the book of Genesis, God calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to make a covenant to you. And the way he does it, if you remember last week, we talked about covenants having teeth. The way they did contracts back then was they would cut an animal in two pieces and the two parties to the contract would walk together side by side between the two pieces of this dead cow. It sounds weird to us, but it's not any weirder than a signature, okay? They cut this cow in half, and they walk between the pieces. And what that symbolizes is if either of us breaks the terms of this covenant, may we be ripped to pieces like this animal. So God goes to make a covenant with Abraham, and Abraham knows what to expect. God says, gives him three or four different animals to cut in half, arrange the pieces, and Abraham is expecting to walk through these pieces with God in this covenant. So that either, either of us breaks this covenant, may we be ripped to pieces. And what happens in Genesis 15? God puts Abraham to sleep, and God himself walks through the pieces. And what does that mean? That means, from God, if I break this covenant that I'm making with you today, may I be ripped to pieces. And if you break this covenant with me today, may I be ripped to pieces. That's the covenant. And that's why Jesus would say later, I'm bringing a new covenant and it is sealed in my blood because he was ripped to pieces. The good news about the judgment of God is it has been satisfied for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. You do not have to ever experience the judgment of God. All you have to do is choose Christ and put your faith and your hope in Christ. And if you will just do that, if you will look to him and live, Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. We will never, if we're in Christ this morning, we will never taste the judgment of God. Jesus drank all of it on the cross. That's why he could say on the cross, it is finished. The judgment of God that was over us is finished. It was poured out 
in full on Jesus. And so now the promise that he made in Ezekiel 36, now it can come true. Now we are new creations in Christ, Paul says. And we have his Holy Spirit, God himself, indwelling us and living out of us as we seek to obey and love and worship and follow him. So what do we do with this information? Today, if you're in Christ, you should rejoice and take great hope in your struggle with sin, that your father is not, you don't have a judge over you looking to condemn you. You have a father over you looking with compassion to help you. He is merciful, he is faithful, and he can help you. So if you're dealing with sin, struggling with sin, don't run from him in shame. Run to him in hope. Confess it, and you'll be forgiven. In 1 John, it says, if you'll just confess it, you'll be forgiven. But if you say you don't have sin, you're actually calling God a liar. So that's not a good idea. Just be open, admit your sin, and turn from it. And then this morning, if you are not in Christ, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. I don't think it's an accident that you're here. Around the world today, and depending on time zones, yesterday, Christians are gathering and somebody is standing up and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, that he is here, he is quick to forgive, he has made a way, he has made a way to satisfy God's judgment, so all you'll ever taste is God's love and grace. So if this morning you're crushed under the weight of your sin, you're feeling guilt and shame over your sin, let us help you turn to Jesus. Let us bring you into the family of God, and you can be fully forgiven and it'll be as though you had never sinned a day in your life. Ezekiel talks about new robes that we will be given. Righteousness. It'll be yours. So I'd invite you to do that. As we stand, let's stand and pray. I'm going to invite the prayer team to come up. They're here to pray with you. We, I think I'm on the prayer team this morning. We are here this morning to pray with you. So if you're, I don't, it doesn't matter where you're at. If you're in Christ and struggling with sin, we want to pray with you and help you. And if you're not a Christian yet, but you're curious and you want to know about becoming a Christian, we would love to pray with you and help you. You will not experience judgment here at this church for any sin that you've done, because it's not any worse than any sin that I've done. You are in a house full of forgiven, repentant, trying sinners. It's where you are, your home. So just come and let us pray with you. Let's pray. Father, God, I just pray you would take your word and administer it through your Holy Spirit as you've promised to do. I pray he'd convict us where he needs to convict us. I pray he'd show us how far our perspectives are different than yours. I pray he'd affirm, affirm us in the righteousness that we try to live in and remind us, as Romans 8 says, that you're our father, not our judge. And God, for anybody here who's just wayward and wants to come into the family, I pray that you would usher them into your family this morning with wide open arms of love and forgiveness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.